Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to thank you for having me along uh, to worship with you this evening. Uh, and I want to pass on uh, the greetings from the Donald Baptist Church uh, to you and Great Vic. Uh, Simon's right, this church uh, is obviously very important to me and family are here. I can remember going to campaigners in this hall on a Saturday, part of the Eagles. I must have been four or five years old. And it's funny what strange memories burn into your, your mind. All I can remember about Eagles is, is sitting on the edge of a stage like this and eating a piece of grapefruit in Eagles and being disgusted by it. I have no idea what the application or point of the, the lesson was, uh, but I do remember that. I remember running up and down the, the corridors in the main church. Um, but this has been a, a really important part of my life and, and a real blessing to my family as well. And it's great to be back with you. Uh, we're going to be continuing your, your series uh, looking at different prayers of the Bible. Uh, and uh, we're going to read again, just before I, I preach on it, we're going to read this prayer by Hannah in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of God. I wonder, have you ever met, I'm sure you have, another Christian that makes you think to yourself, now there's the real deal right there. There's a truly joy-filled, faith-filled believer. What a testimony they have. And, and maybe you know that they've even been through so much in their life, a lot of pain, trials, and yet it only seems to have brought them closer to God. We see the Savior at work in other people. And normally it's a source of encouragement to us. It builds us up. But eventually it can lead us to think, well, what about me? Is my faith as strong as that? I, I think of my prayer life. You're looking at prayers as a church in the evening. I look at my prayer life and I think, well, my prayers 
seemed dull and joyless and small compared to how that believer prays in, in the prayer meeting. And when I sing those worship songs, I believe what I'm singing, but there seems to be a disconnect between here and here. In Hannah's prayer, we, we meet one of those truly joy-filled, faith-filled believers. Her prayer flows from her personal testimony, how God has worked in her life. And her prayer, again, is encouraging to us. But it also might leave us wondering why our faith is not like hers and why our prayers are not like hers. I hope as we examine it this evening, we will learn where true joy comes from. That's the question that I'd like to ask. Where does true joy come from? And as we work through this prayer, we'll, we'll hopefully see that answered. Firstly, true joy comes from seeing the Savior at work in people. Here in chapter 2, we have just had read twice a prayer brimming with joyful praise. In verse 1, we're told that Hannah's heart exults in the Lord, and she rejoices in the salvation that God has brought her. But back in chapter 1, and that was read for us as well, the background to this story, the background to this prayer, we see a prayer that's very different. It's marked by very different emotions, grief, distress, anxiety. So what's made the difference in Hannah's life? Hannah had the world against her. We see that if we read through chapter 1. Nature was against her. She was infertile. She couldn't have children. Society was against her. There was shame attached to not being able to produce children, to not being able to produce an heir for your husband and his family line wrongly. Her family were against her. Her husband's second wife, Penina, ceaselessly mocked her for her infertility, and her husband's who did love her, we read that, well, he was insensitive. He didn't understand her grief, and of course, he was willing to take a second wife in order to get an heir rather than to bear her shame with her. No wonder she was, we read in verse 10 of chapter 1, deeply distressed. So what did she do? Well, we read, she prayed to the Lord, even as she wept bitterly. And many of you know the story. She asks God for a son. She vows to give that son to the Lord to serve at his altar in Shiloh. And then God gives her what she asks for. There's a great reversal in Hannah's circumstances. It's a, a mini salvation that has been worked in her life. God has saved her from the reproach of her, her enemies, those who mocked her. He saved her from the unfair judgment and criticism of her society around her, her neighbors. He saved her from her trial of childlessness, which is a mark of the fall, which none of us originally were designed to endure. And she knows it. She sees the great reversal that God has worked in her life, and she acknowledges him as the source of this reversal. The first three verses in this prayer are Hannah's personal testimony 
of how God has worked in her life. She, she uses words like I, my heart, I rejoice, our God. And they teach us that true joy comes when we humbly trust in God and experience His deliverance. That's what we see in Hannah's life. Often we, we run to human solutions when something goes wrong in our life, don't we? And prayer comes down the pecking order. Prayer is what we fall back on when our attempts to fix things don't work. But there's a great joy that comes from coming first to God and casting yourself on Him, experiencing then His strength and His help through trials and temptation. As we do that, we learn that salvation comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It forces us to rely on Him, and that leads to joy. That's why Hannah is filled with joy. Let's unpack these first three verses a bit and and go down into the details. First of all, look at verse 1. Like I said, we learn here that salvation, God's salvation, looks like a reversal of circumstances. Hannah was powerless to change her circumstances. She was weak. As a woman in her society, there was very little that she could do about her situation. But God wasn't powerless. God lifted her up. She confesses, my horn is exalted, which is really another way of saying God has made me strong. God has acted on my behalf. And now she can say, my mouth derides my enemies. Those who opposed her have been brought low. She has been raised up. And so there's been a reversal of circumstances. And so this is, this is a proper rags to riches story here. It's not the kind of rags to riches story that we see or read about perhaps uh, of the, the self-made businessman who pours blood, sweat, and tears and pulls himself up by his bootstraps from poverty to riches in his own strength. No, no this is more like a Cinderella rags to riches story. A helpless girl enslaved in her circumstances who needs help from the outside to change her circumstances. But it's no furry story. This is how God really works in people's lives. This is how God works in the world. And Hannah knows that. We see that then in verse two. She praises God's character. This is what God is like. And so what God is like flows into what God does. Let's read that verse again. It's a wonderful verse. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God's. It talks about God's holiness. That points to the goodness and the rightness of the decisions that God makes in our lives and in the world. It also points to his otherness. He's unique. There's none like you, God. You have no rivals. And he's also a rock, the rock. That speaks of his power. Nothing can stop God from doing what he wants to do in people's lives. Nothing can stop God from bringing down the proud and raising up the weak. 
And so what Hannah knew to be true of God, she is now seeing at work in her life. This is her testimony. She humbly trusted in God despite the mockery of others, and God raised her up. And that has led to the great joy and faith that we see in Hannah's life. Good for Hannah, you might say. That's great for Hannah. But what about me? Because, you know, I've prayed for X, Y, and Z, but it hasn't come. I haven't received it. The cancer doesn't always go away, does it? The request to be able to have children, Hannah got that, but that request doesn't always get granted. Prayers for the salvation of children isn't always granted. School and workplace bullies sometimes just seem to win in their mockery, especially of believers. So good for Hannah, but that's not my story. Where does true joy come from? Does it only come when we get what we ask for? Let me address that by asking a question. Who are Hannah's enemies? You notice she says that in verse 1. She's not just talking about one person here. She says, my enemies, my mouth derides my enemies. And we need to be careful here as we think about this because we could be tempted to think that Hannah has been mocked by her rival, Peninnah, and now she's got what she asked for, and now she's going to mock back. She's going to boast. That's not very godly, is it? But no, as, as we read Hannah's prayer, we see that Hannah's prayer goes far beyond the horizons of her own situation. She's thinking big. In the Bible, our true enemies are those who oppose and attack our trust, our faith, in God. That can be people. It can be people like Penina, who mocked Hannah, probably saying something like, there's unconfessed sin in your life, Hannah. That's why you can't have children. It could be the society around her. When she sits on her own at the end of the synagogue service, and she sees the glances, and she hears the whisperings, But behind the words of those who oppose God's people is a greater enemy, the great enemy, the accuser of God's people. We sang about that tonight, Satan. And that starts to answer the question, what if God doesn't answer my prayer the way I want him to? When trials come, Satan is behind them. We read that in the book of Job. Satan causes us to suffer if, to see if we'll doubt God. He attacks our faith in God. But we also learn from Job, more importantly, that ultimately God is sovereign behind our trials. Chapter 1 and verse 7 of this book says that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. It says it twice. And similarly, Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We have an enemy in this life. Sometimes he works through people. Sometimes he works through our circumstances. He's working against us through those things that are difficult for us to provoke us to lose our joy and to lose our faith in our great God. But God is working through our trials. The very same trials 
to strengthen our faith and to increase our joy by causing us to throw ourselves at Him, to give up on our own strength and to rely on Him. God is in the business of reversals. Sometimes He reverses our situations by removing the trial and by giving us what we asked for, like Jesus when He healed people, but He didn't heal everyone. Sometimes He just keeps helping us to endure that trial and to drive us closer and closer to Him. And that is victory over our enemies. That's what biblical victory looks like, depending more on Christ and less on ourselves. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis imagines what it would be like if a senior devil wrote letters to a junior devil teaching him how to attack God's people. And the senior devil writes to the junior devil, Wormwood, and he says this, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God's goodness seems to have vanished. And he asks why he has been forsaken, but he still obeys. He still clings to his or her God. I don't know what trials you're facing this evening. Maybe you're one of those people with unanswered prayers, but we can respond to trials the way Hannah did in chapter one. We can humbly cast ourselves on this God and find that joy and salvation are in Him. In fact, if you read Hannah's prayer, it's clear that her joy does not come from what she got from God. Because as we're about to see as we move on to the rest of this prayer, it moves very quickly beyond her personal circumstances. And she is rejoicing in what God is doing in the world at large. She's rejoicing in how great her God is and how mighty his deeds are. But just before we do that, Hannah closes off these first three verses with a rebuke in verse three. After testifying to God's power and goodness, she turns, as it were, to the people of Israel. And she says to them, to God's people, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Joy is given to the weak and the needy who humbly depend on God. It is not given to the proud and the arrogant, those who trust in their own strength and in their own possessions and what they have in this life, the power that they have, the pleasure that they have. And that's why Hannah gives a gracious warning. She says, learn from me. Humbly trust in God. It is him who saves not human strength. And so it's time to diagnose your spiritual health tonight. What's coming from your mouth? Or more likely, what's coming 
from the actions of your life. They speak sometimes louder than our words. Is it proud boasting in what you have achieved in this life, in your gifts and talents, even that you use in this church? Or is it anger and complaints about what you have not been given, even though you've asked for it? Or is there a humble rejoicing in this great God that comes from your mouth and from your heart? There's a rebuke here, and it's difficult to hear, but, but there's also comfort. If you find that your Christian walk is joyless, and you do want to depend on God more, and you do want to be filled with joy, well, you really need to hear the rest of Hannah's prayer, because Hannah's prayer, as I've said, it gets big. And it moves beyond her personal circumstances. And she looks to the world around her where God is at work. And so true joy comes from seeing the Savior at work in the world. Secondly, seeing the Savior at work in the world. I I don't know what your thoughts are on, on watching movie trailers before you actually watch the movie. I have a friend who despises that. He refuses to watch them. He says it's all the good bits that they put in the trailer and it ruins it. And so he refuses to watch them. But personally, I'm the opposite. Now, I'm not a huge movie buff, but if I want to see something, I'm going to watch every trailer that there is. I don't mind a spoiler. It's like an appetizer. It whets your appetite for the excitement that's coming. What Hannah says about God in in verses 4 to 10 shows how God has dealt with her personally, yes, but that's how God really works in the world. But all of how God works in the world, saving and judging, is like a series of trailers, as it were, for a great event that is coming in the future. God saves and He judges in this world to show us, to give us a taste of what is to come. Let me show you in verses four to nine. We need to remember that this is poetry. Uh, Hannah is saying really the same thing in different ways. Uh, And we see a series of reversals. And so in verse four, uh, we we see uh, the mighty having their bows broken, but the feeble being strengthened. In verse five, we have the the hungry, sorry, and we have those who are full. We have those who are barren and those who have children. In verse 6, we have death and life. In verse 7 and 8, we have the poor and the rich. And in all of these circumstances, there's a reversal. Those who were poor are now seated at a feasting banquet table with princes and nobles. And those who were dead are brought to life. God is in the business of reversals. Not just in Hannah's life, but this is how he acts in the world. Let me make a couple of quick observations on those verses. First of all, God has the right to intervene in the world like this. In verse 8, it says that the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on it he has set the world. God made the world, and so God has the right to rule the world. And when his moral standards are are broken and tampered with and messed with, when people get proud and arrogant and trample down the needy, God has the right to intervene. 
and to judge, to bring down the oppressor. God also has the might to intervene in the world. We've already seen this in verse 2. He is the rock. There is none besides him. Nothing can stand in the way of God's saving and judging. And verse 6 makes this clear in the most striking way. Not even death can stand in the way of God and his business of saving and judging. He kills and he brings to life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up again. God is at work in the world. But as I said, all of this is heading somewhere. These are all just little trailers, little snapshots of a much greater salvation and judgment that is to come. We read about it in verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The lesson of this prayer is that human strength, even though it might seem to win in this life, ultimately achieves nothing. God will raise up his faithful ones, those who humbly depend on him, and he will judge the wicked, those who fail to humbly depend on him. Every time you see a criminal brought to justice or an unjust law overturned, a bully confronted, a prayer request answered, every time you experience God's deliverance in this life or see his justice at work, you are seeing a trailer of what is to come. God is in the business of reversals. That is what Hannah rejoices in. She knows that a day is coming when every injustice will be dealt with. And there will be a far greater salvation than the one that she has experienced in her life by receiving a son. And when God doesn't condemn the wicked in this life, what do we see but his patience and his mercy? giving that person an opportunity to repent. And when he doesn't give you what you ask for in prayer, what do we see but God graciously working in his, yes, mysterious and unsearchable and unknowable providence, nevertheless working to drive you closer and closer to him. Greater faith and greater joy come from seeing how the Savior is at work in the world. But you know, there's still a missing piece here, and it's a crucial piece. Probably the most important part of Hannah's prayer comes in the second half of verse 10. It's the key to understanding why God really does sometimes spare the wicked and delays in rescuing those who need him. True joy comes thirdly from seeing the Savior's King. Let me read verse 10 again. 
And the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And this is the important part for this point. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The books of First and Second Samuel are telling a story. It's the story of God placing his chosen king of his people Israel on the throne. There are human ideas about what makes a good king, but human strength fails. King Saul, the first king of Israel, failed. He trusted in his own strength, and he disobeyed what God had commanded him. And so God removes Saul and places David on the throne, a man after God's own heart, the anointed one that Hannah is hoping for and expecting in this prayer. But you know, even this is just a small part of the big story of the Bible, which is about God's true king, his true anointed one, his Messiah. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, God's enemy, Satan, we've talked about him, he tried to subvert the trust of God's people in the garden. And he succeeded. Adam and Eve sinned. But Satan didn't win. God, in that moment, promised that a Savior, a Deliverer, would come. And as the story of the Bible progresses, we find out more and more about this promise. It becomes clearer. God promises to Abraham that from his line, his seed, kings would come. And so the promised Savior of Genesis 3, well, we now learn that he's going to be a king. And King David is indeed set as king over Israel. But that's not the king God's people were expecting. God promises King David that on his throne and in his family line, there will be a forever king. Someone who David will even call my Lord in the Psalms. Then the prophets come. And the prophet Isaiah, he throws a curveball. And he says, this Savior King will suffer. He'll suffer. He'll bear the sins of God's people. He will suffer at the hands of God's enemies on behalf of his people. That is how he will save them. But he also predicted then that this Savior would be the one who would rule not just Israel, but the world. Amazing story. But then 400 years of silence. And then as we crack open our New Testaments, the camera zooms in on a peasant girl from a backwater village called Nazareth. And a, a blazing messenger of God bursts into her world. She's afraid, obviously, but the angel says, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The king that Hannah was truly looking to in this prayer had finally come. Hannah shouldn't have been able to give birth, but God opened her womb, 
And we see here again the very same thing. An unknown peasant girl from a despised town who shouldn't have been able to give birth, a virgin. But God opens her womb and she gives birth to a son miraculously, Jesus, the true son of David, the servant king. And and just like Hannah, Mary rejoices to be part of God's saving purposes in the world. If you fancy some homework this week, read Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. It sounds very like Hannah's. But God's work of reversal is still got more to go here. His Messiah, King Jesus, was a servant king. And just like Isaiah said, Jesus came, well, he came in his own words, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he bore the judgment of God in order that God might save us. Jesus is the key to understanding what God is doing in the world. And he's also the key to understanding why Christians suffer in this life, why we endure trials, trials which may never be lifted in this life. Jesus was a servant king. And as those who follow him, we too can expect to follow the path that he walked. We can expect to suffer in this life. And yet, the Bible's very clear. God has already lifted us up, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. True joy comes from seeing the Savior's King, King Jesus himself. Whether we're blessed with material blessings in this life or not, we have everything that we need and more, an abundance, an embarrassment of riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the source of joy in our lives. The crucial question as I close is, What camp are you in? Are you in the camp of those called his faithful ones? The camp of the king of kings? Or are you in the camp of the wicked? Those who Hannah warns, God will bring down. They will be broken to pieces. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But if you do belong to the king and you're struggling with that joy, well, why don't you learn to pray like Hannah? You've been going through prayers of the Bible. So take some lessons from Hannah. What does she do? Well, first of all, she comes as she is. Come as you are. In chapter one, she comes broken and distressed. In chapter two, she comes with joyful thanks. God welcomes both. Come as you are. Secondly, do what Hannah does, rehearse the Savior's story. She quickly moves out of her circumstances to what God is doing in the world and what God is doing through his king. 
in your prayers, lift yourself out of your own circumstances and look to what our great and awesome God is doing in the world. Come as you are, rehearse the Savior's story in your prayers, and thirdly, when you don't know what to pray, and you don't have the words, and you don't even know where to start, steal the words of Scripture. Use someone else's words. You know, that's almost certainly what Hannah is doing here. I've mentioned already that there's, there's a poetry about this prayer. This is probably not an off-the-cuff prayer. She's probably using an existing psalm and adapting it to her own situation. And I think we're instructed to do the same, to take the psalms of David, the, this prayer of Hannah, the prayer of Mary, the prayer of Jesus, and to use those words and to pray your way into joy. That might not be how you start your prayer. But as you see how the Savior is at work in the world and what he has done for you in your King, I think you'll find that you finish your prayer in a note of joyful praise. Let's come to this awesome God now in prayer. Let's worship him and rejoice in what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to rejoice in your great salvation. Help us to rejoice in your king, your anointed. Thank you that you have raised up your son, the Lord Jesus. And though he was laid low on the cross and in the grave, you exalted him by raising him to life. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand, that he rules over this world, and that our lives are safe in his hands. And so whatever our circumstances, Lord, teach us to rejoice. Teach us to rejoice in Hannah's God in our God. Amen. We're going to close by singing our last hymn, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. Then we'll stand to sing.
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.